This is the Crystal Gemcast, the analytical Stephen Universe podcast. Yes, welcome again to the Crystal Gemcast, the Stephen Universe analytical podcast. I'm Joseph. And I'm Ami. And today we're here to give a commentary on and a bit of a discussion about the episode Tiger Millionaire. And if you think we can't, we'll always find a way. A long time ago, a great philosopher said, Hey, there's going to be spoilers. So with that spoiler warning out the way, I think it's about time to break out the mailbag, don't you? Yep. First of all, we have Stealthfire96. In their message to us, they wrote, Hey guys, I'm loving the podcast. I just wanted to drop in and tell you something. Steven Sugar is actually a background artist on the show, a background designer to be more specific, not a storyboarder. He's credited in a bunch of posts on the Crooniverse blog if you want to check that out. Also, regarding your first episode, how could you talk about the show's music without mentioning Ivy and Sirashus, if that's how it's pronounced? Or songs by storyboarders like Jeff Liu and Helen Joe. They rock. I think that's a very fair comment. Um, the thing is, we can't talk about everything, and everything that you guys bring up to us about people we should know about, we really appreciate. And to be honest, <laughs> this is somewhat embarrassing. The first thing I did to look up involvement was Google interviews, because I thought that's where all the background stuff would be listed. But I uh, neglected the very, very obvious, just look in the credits. <laughs> well, ain't nobody got time for that. Uh, Occam's Razor. Good point. And we got a Reddit comment here from Lady Raveneye, thank you very much, who says, this was fun. I'll have to go back and listen to the first episode. And then she gives some bullet points. So, honourable song mentions have to include Stephen and the Stevens, both the original and the reprise, and Giant Woman. Both really good picks there. And they've also been musing that Stephen might be resistant to things like human disease and general damage. Because, for instance, Greg seems pretty surprised when Stephen's face is badly bruised after the run-in with the Homeworld Gems. I didn't really think of it that way, so maybe Stephen is pretty resistant as part of his heritage. Well, but he is susceptible to allergies, apparently. Well, you know, you can't get away with everything, can you? You can't be perfect (laughs) of health. And finally, they say, uh, What do I not love about Stephen himself? A -a one-of-a-kind in a species in the entire universe who channels that loneliness into a love for anything with a discernible consciousness, whether giant, multicoloured, four-gem fusion or Robonoid, or an acid-spitting monster. He is a character unlike anyone I've ever seen on television. And I think that's also a really fair comment. And lastly, we have our first comment on Facebook from Tony DeSimone. Already listened to it. Great job, guys. Can't wait to hear more. I was initially expecting you to go episode by episode, but I'm really digging this subject-character approach. I actually enjoyed your use of pop culture clips, but the way you use clips in the show is very effective. Thank you very much for your quit. Yep. As always, keep writing to us, and uh, we'll be uh, reading comments at the beginning of pretty much every show. We will. And now for our usual first question that we like to answer, and uh, I think we agreed this time would be our favorite Beach City character. Indeed. Now, are we going to count Connie in this? Um, I think because we're going to do an episode about Connie by herself, and I think it would be best to leave her out. So we'll leave Greg out as well, and let's just pick one Ah. of them all. I'm sorry, but we just have to. (laughs) We've got to pick a bit more obscure than that. Yeah, I guess. If we're going to leave Greg and Connie out of this, I'd say that my favorite would be probably a tie of Sadie and Mr. Smiley. First of all, Sadie is just a great character all around. I like a lot of her interactions with Lars, and I like 
her interactions with Steven and uh, the world around her. And Mr. Smiley is just very entertaining, and both are voiced by very talented people. Sadie voiced by Kate Micucci. For those of you who are not familiar with her work, she has uh, released a lot of songs on YouTube. She has a show on Netflix now, I believe. But most people tend to know her as the woman who played Ted's girlfriend on Scrub. And Mr. Smiley is, of course, voiced by Sinbad, a prolific comedian in the 90s that I can barely remember. Well, considering he appeared in films like Good Burger, I think it's probably good that we don't remember him. But he is brilliant in this. I really, really do like Mr. Smiley, especially his training video for the, um, the donut place. Oh, that was just amazing. Uh, the Wendy's training video parodies. Yeah, you ever see those Wendy's uh, training videos? To be honest, I thought more of the Krusty Krab training video. Well, true, but they are directly influenced by these training videos from Wendy's that Spoonie, also known as uh, Noah Antwiller, uh, riffed on uh, a la Rift Tracks MST3K style, and they are very similar in style and structure <laughs> to the training video that we saw at the Big Donut. I'm pretty sure that must have driven him completely insane. Although I'm pretty sure that those videos didn't have him singing all the way through like poor Mr. Smiley had to. Donuts at the big donut. They make the world go round. A treat when you are down. Donuts at the big donut. Dunk them in coffee or tea. Napkins are always free. I love the way that, you know, Stephen's been watching it and said he's getting more and more and more tired of watching it, and Stephen's just glued to it like he could watch it forever. Oh yeah, but that's sort of how children work, though. They can watch the same video again and again and again and again. Oh, I don't, I know it. I was much like that as a kid. I think it's a common trait shared by most kids. Especially if you're more um, on the autistic spectrum, that really magnifies. I am not as well versed in that, so I'll go with your word on that one. As for characters that I like, again, I would pick Sadie as one of my favourites and Mr. Smiley. I suppose what I would go on to from that is, where's Petey? Because I really love that kid, you know, his weary, cynical look on life. But unfortunately, all of the character focus has gone on to Ronaldo. And I don't like Ronaldo. I mean, I know that I'm kind of not supposed to like him very much, but he just drives me up the wall. Well, I do like Petey in that he's a very earnest person, and that despite being cynical, instead of dragging him down, it grounds him, and it allows him to appreciate the smaller things in life. Yeah, and I just love the little philosophical bits that he puts into it. So when him and Stephen are riding on the rides, and he's just not enjoying it, despite the fact that he actually wanted some time off, and it's just, just not in his nature, is it? To have time off. Yeah. But uh, he does find ways to enjoy his work, though. Like in that one episode where he's talking about how he washes out the condiment bottles. And he says uh, something along the lines of, Dad says to wash it two times, but I like three. Three feels like a cleaner number, don't you think? Something like that. He's just like he's been the reincarnation of Linus from Snoopy. Yeah, that would be a fair comparison. And just to round off this um, selection of characters, Nana Pizza. Nana Pizza? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's fun, though. She feels a bit like a lot of characters that we've seen over the years, like Sam's mom from Danny Phantom, Madam Foster. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't know, I'm not saying that she's bad or that she's a copy, but I feel like that I've enjoyed this trope of the older, but still funny old person, you know, this energetic little lady. So I'm going to open this up to all you listeners out there as well. Please tell us who your favourite inhabitant of Beach City is. That is one that isn't one of the main characters, please. Because, you know, I'm pretty sure you guys all love Greg and Connie and all that. 
And if you say the secret word, you get $100. We have a secret word now? I don't know. I just thought we'd do a little bit of tribute to the Marx Brothers. Fair enough. Today we're taking a departure from our normal format. Joseph is going on vacation soon, so we don't have time to do a normal episode. But we thought we'd uh, do this as a sort of filling in between the cracks thing. Uh, we're going to be doing a commentary over an episode. That's right. And once we've done that, we'll then take a little bit of time to mull over it, and then we'll give you our thoughts on what we got from the episode. These will not be reviews. These will just be what we gleaned from watching it together. And hopefully if this catches on, we will be throwing these in every once in a while just to um, make things a bit different. Although generally our old format will be the main format. And also the next format of me getting Joseph to say all the lines from the Stanley Parable. That is not happening. <laughs> There's too much to do. <laughs> That's not the only request I've been given, of course. Apparently someone I know would like me to read them a bedtime story. Do Barry White songs? Because you got that really nice bass to your voice. I don't think I can sing Barry White. It's too <laughs> low for me. Alright, so on to the show. The following commentary will start at the title card. So, to make sure it syncs up correctly, just go about 23 seconds in to where it says Tiger Millionaire. If you don't have the episode on hand, or you'd like to skip ahead and listen to the review section, just go about 11 minutes on from this point. The commentary will start in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Poor old Steven. I love how all the gunk on me consists of one little blob on her arm. Well, it's Pearl. <laughs> I love the way Stephen's walking. That is... <laughs> oh, no. Stephen. Stephen's going to be taken by those things that got Squidward. I don't even know what those are. But this is, I think, our biggest um, look into Amethyst from the start. I think this is the episode that got me to like Amethyst because we get to see how she works instead of just, you know, being this silly person that just... Stance around for the punchlines. Oh, Pearl, you silly person. <laughs> I, th I think this is kind of out of character for them. You know, leaving Steven in the lurch. I don't know, it's pretty easy to forget these things when you get too involved. I want a cloak like that. Huh. What do you think, JR? Bah, God King! I, I can't do a JR impression, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's a slobber knocker. And there's Mr. Smiley again. It's good to see him. Wrestling isn't real. And the first, I have to say, this is very cathartic for me. I could put yeah. that on loop over and over and over again. <laughs> Oh, man. I miss the cheesy gimmicks like that, though. Everything's too serious nowadays in current wrestling. Have you actually watched that? Bray Wyatt. Bray Wyatt is not serious. 
Well, yeah, but we don't get, like, the hurricane or that giant chicken costume anymore. What, the gobbledygooker? You actually miss that? I don't know. I think that could work. Words to live by Amethyst. <laughs> Wrestling summed up. It really is. <laughs> Why did he? But you have to think. Why did he take pe peanut butter underwear? I have never seen a better garnet impression. I love the suiting up sequence. Yeah. In general. I really like how he, I don't like how he chooses the manager persona. Well, he hasn't even... The weird thing is he's gone for a manager thing without realising he's a manager yet. Oh, yeah. So for all you guys that don't know, Tiger Millionaire is clearly a rip on um, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Now, that's a bit before my time. Well, he was, um, did spend a lot of time as a manager. And they'll try to kill you with a forklift. Huzzah! Oh, oh come on. No, no, no MST3K references. <laughs> This is sort of like the Clark Kent dilemma. <laughs> I love how they like take what would normally be a twist at the end of the episode and just bluntly state it at the beginning. Well, it's Sadie. She's very perceptive. Yeah. But this is where Steven has to work out how to do his, his thing. But it's also kind of creative because Steven isn't always uh, a fighter at heart. Uh, this is one of my favorite tropes. When, when he's talking to himself and someone else sounds like he's actually responsing. How much do you think a million jungle bucks is actually worth? Yes, I saw that, Lars. What a waste of popcorn. <laughs> Look at that grin. I <laughs> uh, gotta love those props. I I remember. I almost remember phones that big. Ah uh, man, those were the days. Back when you didn't have everything on a phone. Well, you couldn't fit anything on a phone. Where did you <laughs> get those, those coconuts from? Uh, hyperspace. Oh, that's what a million jungle books look like. <laughs> they are quite good at all these different gimmicks are pretty cool. I do love that Steven uh, actually works on all this himself. Well, he's a very imaginative kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if, you think about it, this, if you think about it, this is like one of the only times that Steven actually gets openly accepted by Lars. Oh. <laughs> what? I just noticed his galoshes have birds on them. 
Now, this would be a common trope in pretty much any wrestling show with a plant in the audience. Well, it's not a plant, though. Of course, Lars is real. Right. But, oh, Steven. <laughs> the funny thing is, most people wouldn't get like Lars would. Yeah. But Steven takes everything so seriously. I love how he quotes things. <laughs> but I think, that, uh, I think that shows part of Amethyst's uh, insecurity right away before, this, it, before the scene gets serious. Because now the scene's all serious, but she already shows that she takes everything to heart. Oh, she clearly does. She acts like she doesn't, but clearly she does. Oh, they're just they're they're kind of disturbing looking, don't you think? I don't know. It kind of reminds me of uh, Hans und Franz from SNL. Oh well, I guess they might be based on the Von Erichs. Yeah. Um. How was it? Kevin Nealon and uh, Dana Carvey. Well, I never really watched SNL. It's not. Oh. <laughs> That basically is the way it works. <laughs> That's a bit of foreshadowing for the uh, Shirt Club episode. Good pictures as well. Good likingness. By the way, Circus of Violence definitely sounds like some sort of um, album title. Oh, the kayfabe tradition does come from carnivals. Uh-oh. Sapphire like is not going to take any more crap. Uh, Sapphire? Yeah. That's Sapphire's glove. Oh. I forgot about that theory. <laughs> well, it's true though she is two people at once still um, Amethyst was just like a kid, little kid wasn't she yeah I love that guitar line in the background <laughs> good save <laughs> <laughs> Born free, free as the wind blows. Perfect. <laughs> I always love how blunt Garnet is. They're terrible actors. Well, so is most of the WWE currently. Oh, that's cruel. 
I don't know, I just don't think Vince McMahon can operate well without competition. I love the tiger is not a jerk sign. <laughs> oh, the selling that Garnet does. <laughs> no, no one's as good as Steve in it coming out with this stuff. Even Mr. Smiley's even Mr. Smiley's not that great at doing I wonder when ladder matches became a thing. Well, someone needs to save wrestling from Vincent McMahon. You probably have a point there. Okay, so we're back, and we're here to talk about that episode. So, Army, what would you say most hit you about that episode? Well, other than the characterization of Amethyst, just how far they go into the kayfabe tradition of pro wrestling. First of all, they go into the heel-face dichotomy, the good guy, the bad guy, etc. and so forth, and how that dynamic shifts over time depending on what night it is. That's true. There's usually some sort of ebb and flow to wrestling, like all the best promotions sort of book in advance. So you want to sort of manage the reaction of the audience. So if they're a bad guy, you want them to really, really hate the bad guy. But it gets to a certain point when, especially if you run out of things to do with a bad guy, you have to find ways of making it differently. I mean, for some characters, like, uh, for instance, Stone Cold Steve Austin, he was kind of a bad guy, but he became really, really popular being a bad guy. And especially during the Attitude Era is when those sort of characters, they could do horrible things and still get cheered. So they were basically good guys, and they were treated like good guys and booked like good guys, but they were a sort of more of a nasty sort of good guy. Well, the anti-hero has gotten more popular, but the uh, difference between a heel and a face can often be just what uh, the script says before the match. Much like how Andy Kaufman would go on long tirades back when wrestling was a regional thing. That was when he was against... Um... When he was against the king, wasn't it? Jerry Lawler. Yep, and they would keep escalating this feud with Andy Kaufman coming in to insult the audience or his women wrestling matches, etc. and so forth. But to be fair, though, in those sort of things, it was going to be like that because Jerry Lawler was just so popular in Memphis. You know, there was absolutely no way that anyone coming in, they'd have to be the bad guy. It does help that Andy Kaufman was that sort of person anyway, that he, want, he liked to be abrasive. That's where he got a lot of his comedy from. Especially when you consider his alter ego, Tony Clifton. Um, another thing that I liked from the episode was how Stephen is, for all intents and purposes, despite being part of a tag team, he's a manager. And managers are really important to pro wrestling. Because, let's face it, um, Amethyst, she didn't even come up with a backstory. You know, her backstory is, Pumas are cool. And it goes into the tradition of many before him, like, with Undertaker, he had the pallbearer. Oh yeah, Paul Bearer. Paul Heyman's still doing it for um, Brock Lesnar. And it's really important because they are the talkers for the people that don't like to talk. Now obviously, with The Undertaker, he did eventually learn to talk, albeit some of his promos weren't that great, but not that I would tell it to his face. <laughs> but the main thing a manager has to do is they have to get the crowd either cheering or booing. If they're not doing anything, they're really not much of a manager at all. And all the best managers knew how to milk a crowd. Oh, yeah. And they knew how to do it based on the personality that they were doing. And once again, if we're going back to one of the people that Stephen was based off, Ted DiBiase was a wrestler. 
arguably wanted to be more of a wrestler, but um, speculation going around that Vince McMahon saw him more as manager material because he wasn't sort of the big, he was a big bulky man, but he wasn't sort of the big muscly Hulk Hogan sort of guy. Yeah. But still, Million Dollar Man as a character was amazing. He had the best evil laugh in wrestling, <laughs> bar none. And just the way that he, his money, I mean, I know that JBL tried something similar and generally did an all right job at it, but I don't think anyone did such a good thing as you know, the sort of man who brazenly will come and pay you off. He tried to buy the championship belt. I don't know anyone else that tried to do that, and I think that's a, definitely part of who Stephen was based off. And as Stephen went through the episode, he started becoming a mix of it. There are very rare cases of a person being a manager and a fighter, like Vince McMahon, late career Ric Flair, uh, Mick Foley. I think that's very true. I mean, it's generally the people that have been wrestlers and transitioned into managers, which again, when we go back to Million Dollar Man, he was a wrestler first and then he transitioned into managing at people. But I mean, it's not just people like him. I mean... um. There are some lots that don't wrestle at all. People like Bobby Heenan, who was possibly the best heel manager of all time. And I think that it really works for Steven because when you look at how Steven as his persona Tiger Millionaire, he's brilliant at improvisation. And that's such an important thing for him because when you notice of all of his dirty tactics that he uses, they're all based on his character. Everything he does is filtered through that perception. And that really plays to Stephen with his personality in that while he is a crystal gem and he does fight, he is not a very intrinsically violent person. Uh, even with the types of games he plays, if there's any violence at all, it's usually very fantasy violence and it's against something that is this amorphous force of nature kind of evil, like with Wind Waker that he owns, or that Final Fantasy-ish golf game that he played. Well, let's not forget um, the actual game he starred in. Oh, yeah. And so it plays to a lot of what you don't really see in a lot of protagonists in action shows, in that protagonists, if they uh, aren't the one doing most of the butt-kicking, they are Johnny Quest or they are Penny from uh, Inspector Gadget, and that they constantly invite themselves to these missions, to these important jobs, with uh, no knowledge of their parents, or if they are, they are told to stay out of it and just stay in the room, but they go on it anyways and still do a lot of the action. Whereas Steven doesn't really relish in violence as much. He likes playful fighting, but even when he's in this situation where he's part of the playful fighting, he is a much less violent character than the other characters that are play fighting. And he is basically the support guy, and he's the heart, and that works perfectly for the wrestling business and the role he played. Whereas, of course, when you look at Amethyst as a purple puma, you know, she just goes for the fact that she is really, really strong. And that's a very valid gimmick, because when you have your gimmicks and hooks... You really don't need one when you are the big show because you already are huge. You don't need one when you're Andre the Giant because you're Andre the Giant. When you have Batista, The Rock, their main draw is their mere bulk. Except for The Rock, who is very good at playing crowds and very good at doing the acting bit. The problem is that I think it shows the weakness of those sort of characters. Yes, you do have The Rock. The fact that The Rock could speak as well as fight meant he sort of didn't need a manager. 
Whereas when you look at, say, let's pick someone that's recent. Let's let's talk about Rusev. I don't know who that is. Okay. Well, he's um he's a big Bulgarian guy, and he had a manager. Her name is Lana. Um, she was from the US, but she basically spoke with a Russian accent and was very much pro-Russia and you know that sort of um stereotype. Oh, the stereotype gimmicks. And I parodied that with the jobber that is Ronaldo with the Loch Ness monster. That was terrible. And there almost always is a villain like that. Like when you get back to the 60s and 70s when being a pompous British guy was the height of heel entertainment. Uh, if you go into the history of the WWE, the WCW, etc. and so forth, you'll find these really broad racial stereotypes as the gimmick. And uh, they don't generally move away from that gimmick once they are stuck in it. I think that's fair. But, I mean, going back to Rusev, you know, he's a guy that's really, really strong, legitimately strong. And I think he has a good character to him. But really, when you look at all the crowds, they're all, it's, it's Lana they're all really gunning for, especially now that she's broken away from him. So I think the problem with Amethyst is that it shows that really she is just in for the fighting and the steam letting offness of it. Whereas I think for Steven, it's mostly about the story. And it's perfectly valid. I mean, for many years, story has been an integral part of things. There are a team of writers these days that, okay, they don't really write that well, but they still write. But they know how to get up these new personas like when the NWO was formed in WCW with Sting and I forget who else was in it. But, you know, with composition of the songs, uh, helping build personas, they're a very integral part of the show, but an often overlooked one. And for me, the other interesting thing about this episode is it is our first major look into Amethyst. And it really focuses on the fact that she is very, very insecure. Yeah, she has a a similar source of insecurity with Steven in that she really wants to be accepted, but she's at an age where her irresponsibility and recklessness often put other people in danger or puts them in friction with others. And she is technically old enough to know better. What? (laughs) Yeah! Let's mash it up! Bigger, better, better! <laughs> Hold your horses! Are you guys going to become a gem fusion? The thing is, the gems, because they live so long, it's really up to them how they develop emotionally. And I think that because of all the trauma that she's had to deal with, it's sort of stuck her in sort of a teenagery mode. It's like a lot of the time she's moody and, you know, even her pranks and her general attitude really, to me, I would say, go for some sort of teenagers because not all teenagers act like that, of course, but you do get the one or two of them that do act in the same way that Amethyst does. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, we also saw her basically throw a tantrum when Garnet was like the big stern parent saying, no, that's it, time out. And she's like, no, I don't want a big shove. And it's on. You know? Yeah, I get that. But it's important to note that we don't know at what stage of development everybody is at in relation to the gym maturity cycle, in that from the span of maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, when Greg and Rose first met, they were all very much the same as Amethyst is now, and Amethyst was almost Stephen-like though a bit more curious and adventurous. And we find that their personalities 
haven't deviated that much in that small gap, but their appearances have. And so I'm wondering if they have unconsciously aged themselves up physically, even though that they are internally, psychologically much younger, in, and that they, like Steven, have aged by virtue of their trauma of losing Rose Quartz and their attempt to adjust to that and taking on all this responsibility, they felt like they needed to be older, and therefore they look older. Well, given that Stephen himself, his appearance changes on his age, I think it makes a lot of sense to, to view it in that way. But it's interesting to note that Amethyst, even though she's she jokes about, you know, she's really quite articulate with how she feels when she does open up how she feels. Like I said in the commentary, even before that serious scene gets serious, she already, just joking around, enumerates how she feels and how she views the world and how she internalizes everything that people say at face value and that really it's only opinions that matter to her that get her to question how she feels about herself. When Pearl and Garnet are getting onto her, justified or not, she sees the face value of Pearl is getting onto me and she thinks I don't do things well. Garnet treats me as an irresponsible person, so therefore that's how I'm going to act because I might as well give them what they want. She hasn't quite got the fact that when you get older, the only person you're really maturing for is yourself. Like, when you get older, it's just a way of dealing with things. But I think that Amethyst isn't taking on any responsibility right now, and that does prevent some uh, growth and maturity. I think that's fair. That's because she is just locked up tight and will not talk about things, as we find out later. Yep. And I think it's important to note that while the other gems give her and Steven that outlet at the end, you know, the wrestling, that, you know, they let them have that, to quote Steven, it's clear that they don't fully recognise how much turmoil Amethyst is in. I guess it's that sort of thing like sometimes, you know, you can have a little bit of an argument with someone and find a way of blowing off steam and you sort of come to an agreement and it all seems fine. But I think this just is the tip of the iceberg for Amethyst. Well, if anything, like on the run is concerned or that offhand comment during their first trip to the strawberry fields uh, that when Amethyst is complimented, she takes that instantly to heart and that she instantly internalizes it and loves that praise. And even though that she is a very independent person and knows that she wants to feel how she wants to feel about herself, she very much cares what other people think about her. And so when she hears bad things about kindergarten and where she came from and how she was made, she associates that with herself and assumes that Pearl and Garnet are uh, afraid of her or they don't like her because of that. We will get to that on the Amethyst episode, but it does show that in some ways... When you look at who Steven's most like, I think it's fair to say that Steven is most like Amethyst out of all the other gems. That's true, but you have to wonder what it'll be like when he matures a little bit, in that will he start moving towards being more like Garnet or Pearl or just an older version of himself or Greg? Or will he continue to have that, you know what, scratch that line of thought? No, I think it's an interesting way to look at it. And, I mean, for me, I just think that he will still be Steven, but different aspects of his personality will just open up because, you know, we are all start off being who we are. I mean, I don't think we really change that much in the broadest sense, but more that more of our facets of our personality get shown to us. You mean like uh, locks suck? I don't understand. 
Oh, uh, you played Nine Hours, Nine Persons, Nine Doors? I have not, no. Well, they discussed that philosophical concept that uh, if you took a sock and you kept patching it every time it got a hole, and at one point where it is all pat, is it still the same sock as before, or is it a brand new sock because none of the original material is there? Oh, I see. Yes, like um, we did a similar thing on in British television with um, this character called Trigger from Only Fools and Horses. This old broom has had 17 new heads and 14 new handles in its time. <laughs> How the hell can it be the same bloody broom? So now it's time to wrap up our discussion. So after seeing the episode and this little chat we've had, Army, what would you say is the one big thing that sums it all up for you? Hmm. More MST3K references. No, seriously. <laughs> well, I, I think it sums it up that this show has a lot of depth to it that can be deceiving at a first glance. Because when you see the advertisements, it's, oh, hey, Steven, he's cute and he does stuff and there's like fighting in it. But there is a lot of emotional depth to the show that you would find in your Avatar The Last Airbenders, you know, and other shows like that. That's interesting. Um, for me, what I get from this is just the fact that someone clearly loves wrestling <laughs> on the show. And I think it's wonderful that people can take things that they like and refract them through the prism of what Steven Universe is. Because, I mean, we get these sort of things from cartoons all the time. I think that's possibly one of the best things about cartoons is that you can take the characters and mostly put them in any sort of situation and a lot of the time they'll work. And in this case, you know, Stephen is a great manager and it's clear that... I know Tiger Millionaire, this probably is a one-off thing, but I would love to see Stephen as Tiger Millionaire again. That would be kind of cool. Maybe in a Halloween episode he'll dress up. I think that'd be pretty awesome. And I still do like how they avoid some, you know, of the usual tropes because another show doing a similar plot would have left the Amethyst is insecure and is doing this to blow off steam behind in favor of the relationship of Amethyst and Steven as a tag team. And that nonchalant line, I'm just using you to get the tag team title, would have been saved for near the end of the episode where Steven confronts Amethyst, you know, like, are you just using me? And then Amethyst would have to take a fall to show Steven how much she cares. And then they wouldn't win the award, but they would be rewarded with the knowledge that they respect each other. And I'm glad that they avoided that because seeing the same formula over and over again can be a bit tiring. Well, they don't need to do that formula. You know, we already know that Steven and Amethyst are friends. But I'm just saying that that's how the episode could have gone. Exactly, and I agree with you that I think it's great that Steven Universe, like a lot of other shows that are out now, they don't pick a rote moral and just parrot it. They go with what's best for the show. And I think more shows could benefit from learning from that. I'm looking at you, Family Guy. Hmm? I thought you were going to talk about the English version of Sailor Moon for a second. Oh, I've never seen it. Oh, well, they cut out a lot of content and they replaced the content with clips of the episode that just happened with a voiceover from the English voice actress of Serena stating some sort of lesson that, that may or may not have anything to do with the episode whatsoever. Oh, no, that's just like those awful things at the end of the adventure of Sonic the Hedgehog show. Yep, but more lazily done because they literally just shrink the picture while they're doing the clips and have this border that sort of looks like Rugrats title background when they're showing the episode name. That's really lazy. Yeah. 
it's good to know that television executives treat us with so much more respect now, he said sarcastically. I'm still sore over how Young Justice was treated, but... Uh, I'm more, more upset with how Teen Titans was treated. Oh, <laughs> don't even get me started. I'm not going to. There is no such thing as Teen Titans Go. Well, unfortunately, it does exist. There is no it. such thing! Okay, okay. <laughs> Fine. Ah, okay. It's like there's no such thing as Dragon Ball GT. Now that I agree with. Well, we're about to draw to a close for today. Joseph, will you please go ahead and tell us where you can find us? Well, our main home is on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash the Crystal Gemcast. You can find all our stuff there. You can also find us on iTunes if you just search for the Crystal Gemcast there, then you will be able to find us. And if you want to help bump us up in the listings, please give us a star rating or a review or subscribe to us. And we also are more than willing to discuss the Steven Universe and the Gemcast at the Crystal Gemcast Tumblr. Twitter.com slash Crystal Gemcast, all one word. You can also find us on Facebook under our name, The Crystal Gemcast. And we will also be posting our content on Reddit. So be sure to follow us, like us, reblog us as much as possible, and feel free to ask us anything. And also with our episode's new subject of What is your favorite beauty city resident? Tell us and we'll be reading some of the comments in our next episode. And of course, you can contribute to our main discussion of the episode Tiger Millionaire. And as always, our content will be shared by TM Stash, where we are also hosted and reblogged from. Yes, thank you very much, TM Stash, for being such a great host. And all that remains for us to do is to wish you a happy whatever time you're listening to us. I'm Joseph. And I'm Ami. And remember to keep Beach City weird. Bye. Bye bye. That was the Crystal Gemcast. Our credits music, Stronger Than You, was written by Estelle and Rebecca Sugar and arranged and performed by UC Berkeley. Steven Universe was created by Rebecca Sugar and is a production of Cartoon Network Studios. Thanks for listening.